Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. What is it like refereeing Karen Duggan on a pitch? We've heard many things. Very quiet, easy day. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTV Sports app now. Now you're welcome along to Wednesday evenings off the ball. Matt Williams and Neve Briggs on the way for Wednesday Night Rugby after 8 o'clock. Miguel Delaney on the football show. Gianni Infantino did himself no favours in front of a European Assembly this afternoon. We'll talk to him about that and a general temperature take on the Premier League. Journalist Regina Sondo is with us from Cameroon. She reports on the crush, which resulted in eight deaths and 38 injuries at the African Cup of Nations. Two children died on Monday evening. So Regina Sondo is on the ground and will talk to us about all that. Tim Vickery is also on the show. Neymar has a new three-part documentary out on Netflix. Frankly, I've watched it, so you don't have to. 53106, the text number. We're at off the ball on Twitter. Richie McCormick, good evening. Hey, Joe. And Daniel McDonald of the Irish Independent. Hello, Dan. Evening, Joe. Would the Neymar documentary, Dan, on Netflix take your fancy? Will you have a look? Three-parter, one hour each. Uh, I have to be honest. Maybe I'm just in my own zone. But I had that's the first I've heard of that. Um, it's only out yesterday. You, ah, okay. You've said you've watched it, so we don't have to. So you're yeah. telling me it's 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 good. I mean, yeah. I have to say, Joe. I mean, I'm not sure if you're always the most enthusiastic of fellas about too much stuff. Anyway, but you're not killing me with enthusiasm there. I'm always enthusiastic when you're on the show. Yeah, and maybe golf, you know, <laughs> other, other things. No, I, I watched it. I, I, Neymar's uh, not generally been the most sympathetic character, I would say, over the last number of years. Uh, there is a great sense of unfulfilled talent. There's a certain, uh, you know, a prince tag, which he's never quite shaken off. The boy prince, as Dan Rohn, I think, called him a couple of years ago. And uh, it's hard to see him as a 30-year-old and you kind of look at his body work and feel there should have been so much more and there's the preening and the diving and the screaming and you throw you know the move to PSG was very questionable so from the outset I wasn't thinking I can't wait to get an insight into this character who's achieved so much um but I watch it for work purposes I didn't find it terrible I mean generally I'm I'm kind of into these things even for the superficial reasons to see what's their house like what's their day-to-day lifelike as opposed to are you into that stuff the house house, really are you into the house like the cribs type thing really I I, I absolutely would be into that the the trappings they're all going to be be incredibly ostentatious anyway so at this point is anything surprising are you looking for something a bit vain Oh, like over the top, like a portrait of himself or something. Is that what you were... Oh, well, there were about? several portraits of himself around the house. Actually. Yeah, because I, I was just thinking, you were in Brazil in 2014, right? For the World Cup. I mean, yeah. does, does any of it touch on any of that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it flicks, that that it, would interest me, actually. It yeah. flicks back and forth a lot. So he's talking in the present and it flicks back and then flicks back to the present and, and that's how it works. And yeah, 14 is very much touched on. Actually, he's had a dodgy back ever since 14 on account of breaking the vertebrae back in 14 right. which I didn't realise he also had his funeral before the semi-finals effectively you know effectively, remember like you, yeah. like you know the bouquets on the pitch and stuff you know like it was but, but when you think about it that is a, a person's life you know yeah. I mean and we all probably even now even just been a bit facetious sort of talking about it um, but he was carrying the hopes of a frenzied nation on his on his back hmm. you know so um, like it's it's obviously I mean, if there's insight to the character behind that and the pressures as opposed to the house, 
you know, I'd be more into the first part of that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. And the biggest insight I think you get is into the extent to which his father is a very overbearing presence, even to this day. So his father effectively runs the company. When I say the company, Neymar employs 217 people. Don't ask me what they all do, but he employs 217 people. And they're very intent on building an empire. You know, at one point, his father turns to the television and says, like, I don't want my boy to have to work as a TV pundit when he's finished. You know, as if this would be uh, an absolute travesty. So uh, the business side is, is very much his father's uh, forte. But there's a there's a good old argument between the two of them at one stage where Neymar Jr., and again, he's 30, but he's very much Neymar Jr. He's a touch infantilized, I think, as a person. And you, you sort of understand why he has stayed almost boyish when you, you see the extent to which his father is all over his affairs. But he's trying to push back a little bit and saying his father's too aggressive and doesn't like the way his father even speaks to people. And the father is not listening to any of this and saying, well, I'm doing this all for you and I'm building the empire for you. And when the time comes, almost like when you're old enough, I'll hand it over to you. So that dynamic is is one of the more interesting aspects. The other thing which caught my eye, because I expected total whitewash. I mean, you do when the main protagonist Mm. is cooperating. But what was very interesting is that the three parts were interspersed with Vox Pops, uh, largely in Paris or Brazil. And I would say 99% of what the fans are saying about Neymar is very, very unflattering. Everything from he's overweight, to he's prima donna, to he's a diver, to he doesn't care, all he cares is about fame and celebrity, he doesn't work hard enough. This, this is the general refrain of the fans uh, interviewed yeah. and included, which is kind of interesting. You've, you've given it more of a sell now, I have to say, Joe, in a way, because I, I kind of wonder is that second part there, what you say, um, you kind of wonder, like, even the drive to survive phenomenon now that you see all the other sports are copying it, and maybe the sort of the powder puff documentary that's over the top um, you know, just painting someone in a very, very favourable light, that isn't actually good for the brand anymore, you know? And you, you, you actually do have the sports documentary now. For example, something like Drive to Survive, which has taken off, and I know it had its critics still for maybe real hardcore fans of the sport. But, I mean, it, 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 it wasn't 100% whitewashed off at all. Like, it gave you a little bit more of the character. So the fact that you're talking about an argument and a bit more negative commentary and... Okay, I think I think maybe it is worth watching. Yeah, have a look. Have a look. It there. Have yeah. a look. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Like I said, Richie, I wouldn't have been jumping to get into Neymar necessarily, even though he's been such a big global figure for, well, I guess, a decade now. But it's not terrible. Will you have a look? No, being honest. Yeah. Um, like I, I'm, I'm curious, but it's just it, it's somebody that you can never ever warm to, no matter how many insights you get to him, because. And like, like I, like you were there in, in 2014. I was there two years later when he essentially carried uh, a young Brazil side to to the Olympic title, and that mm. was almost a silver medal in terms of 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 his achievements uh, compared to to 2014. And the way that he was, you know, idolised, and that night I'll never forget the noise that was made when he struck the winning penalty, and it seemed like it was bigger than than any other player would get at the time. But he's one of these players that seems it, like there's great players that raise the levels of others around them within a team like Maradona was was certainly one of those players and there have been countless others as well but Neymar is is a great player who doesn't manage to raise the levels of others around him because he's so much in it for himself 
and the move to PSG like encapsulate encapsulates that like he, he's so much about brand Neymar and like more footballers are going to be like this let's not fool ourselves but he's all about you know putting forward himself rather than the team that he's playing for and the team he's playing for is immaterial it's what's the best deal around, and next around the corner and I think he touches on that in the documentary and that he almost left PSG after they lost in the semi-finals of the Champions League but wanted to to continue in a rare moment of of of, of candor and honesty but um yeah, he's not somebody I could I could find myself warming to easily. No, that's the general feeling on him. So Tim Vickery's with us on the football show to chat Neymar. Uh, Dan, just before we start Richie's news round, and there is a, a busy news round to get to, uh, Victor Pereira. Uh, there are different ways to interview for a job, of course. Victor Pereira has decided to pick a fight with the club before he gets the job, which is an interesting way of going about things. Well, I would suggest he's not going to get the job, you would say. Um, I don't know if people are aware of this, but he, he went on Sky Sports News today uh, to do a live interview. Now, listen, I mean, I'm up for the concept of managers doing like exit interviews after they, you know, they have an interview for a job. It's not like, you know, you, I mean, you used to live off Harry Redknapp rolling down the window and giving a transfer window update potentially to someone. But if someone after being interviewed then wants to come on and give that sort of three and a half minute review on, on how it went, almost like a, like a first date's debrief or something, you know, talking about well, how it went. And, you know, I thought I impressed them at first with my discussion about, you know, the, from a, you know, the, the style of play I wanted to play. And, you know, I met... You know, I met Ken Wright or whoever else. You know, it's 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 lovely, you know, but but clearly an insane strategy, you know, and more so reflective of um, if you're being entirely cynical. And it's not even don't even need to be massively cynical to see that it seems like more of a strategy of someone who may not be getting the job. Um, but it's good to have his name out there and to be out there on Sky Sports News because presumably the next job that comes up, his name is a little bit more in the consciousness in this part of the world because I mean you know how things I mean it's it's very rare that you get anyone to speak who's in the middle of a job hunt uh, you wouldn't you know it's not as if you send the researcher to ask the question and see if you give him a buzz but you give him a buzz and see if he'll come on and talk about the Everton job interview um, it's clearly been a lot more you could say choreographed in some way and that leads you to, to be somewhat sceptical about and it but what did he yeah. say on Sky Sports News well he just I mean he spoke about um how he had spoken with, you know, uh, Bill Kenroy, I think years ago, I think initially, um, and then like went into discussing, um, you know, his plans for Everton, how he remembered Everton, the leaders of, you know, Jagielka and Baines and Coleman got a mention. And then he, uh, he spoke a bit about the interview itself um, and uh, maybe how he spoke a little bit about the style of play he wanted. And then he was asked about this graffiti, which seems to have popped up somewhere in Liverpool where someone has sprayed Pereira out Lampard in on a on a wall somewhere now I, again I find I mean I'm not in touch with the mood of the Everton fans I didn't realise that there was a there was a, a group out there that wanted Frank Lampard so badly that they've effectively taken to the streets um, in an act of sort of you know let, let's get some graffiti some art to go in with our mood here um, but it's just all a little bit it's all become a little bit sort of um embarrassing in a way for Everton that someone who clearly was a serious candidate um, has opted to sort of go this very unorthodox route. As I said, I sort of welcome it in a way. If, if, if people want to go full transparency and just start openly talking about interviews before a job decision has been made, that's great. 
Um, but I don't think it's it's a it's a hugely conventional way that things are gonna you know go from this from this way forward. But um, yeah, um, it, it certainly it seems to have the footprints of an agent over. It, it has to be said. I don't think there's anything revelatory, dramatic in, in reaching that conclusion about the the overall situation. Yeah, very, very strange. We will uh, start the news round. Dan McDonald with us here on the news round this evening, as is Richie McCormick. It is brought to you by Gillette. Put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. And Richie, you've done it again. You're uh, giving Dan yep. nothing but rugby news all the way. Absolutely. Ian Henderson is Andy Farrell's only real injury concern ahead of the start of the Six Nations. The Ulster lock hasn't played since mid-December due to an ankle injury. Joey Carberry sustained a fractured elbow on the same weekend, but Farrell insists the Munster out half will be fit for the visit of defending champions Wales on Saturday week. After a promising autumn, Farrell said today at the media launch that there's no chance of his team resting on the laurels. Get stuck into the lessons learned uh, and make sure that we focus on how we're going to get better, you know? Um, I know everyone would say that, but it, but it's the truth. We we want to get on the edge of our, of our comfort zone and, and push the boundaries for ourselves to, to to get better as a team. And we feel we've uh, we've pushed on and probably got our foundations in order. The fundamentals of our game are certainly better, um, but there's certainly a lot more to do. We've got Matt Williams and Nick Briggs on the way after eight o'clock. Bit of a blow for England. Yeah, England captain Owen Farrell ruled out of the entire Six Nations campaign. The Saracens out half underwent ankle surgery today, which will keep him out for 10 weeks. George Ford was already called up as a replacement earlier this week. But Eddie Jones has big plans for his squad beyond the next eight weeks. They're excited about the prospect of where we can take this team. And our immediate goal is to win the Six Nations. And obviously our ultimate goal is to win the World Cup. Um, and we know we've got a number of areas we need to keep improving in. So it's, it's having that discipline and that focus and that attention to make sure every day we're paying attention to the things that are going to be important in improving the team. And this is a high quality competition. Do you like that, Dan? Eddie Jones just saying it bluntly, even 18 months out, our goal is to win the World Cup. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to say Eddie Jones is sort of a, always a good interview, isn't he? Mm. So, he's, I mean, that's what you want, characters. To get you to get you engaged in the game. I mean, there's nothing I love more in rugby than a good a good focus on the World Cup, a good bit off. Whatever goes wrong when you do that, you know, <laughs> it's a, that that seems to always end well from my uh, casual knowledge of this situation. It ends okay for other countries at times. Nothing seems to end well for us. So whether we're focused yeah. on the World Cup or not focused on the World Cup. It tends to go awry. Uh, now, this story certainly has caught your eye, Dan, I know. So, uh, Richie mentioned it last night, but uh, confirmation of the deal between St. Pat's and Udinese? Yeah, done deal. James Abanqua is a Udinese player. The 18-year-old defender will remain, though, at the Inchicore Club until July as he completes his leaving cert. It's believed the Pats have secured a record fee for a League of Ireland player, believed to be in excess of the half million euro that Shamrock Rovers received from Manchester City for Gavin Bazunu back in 2018. Yeah, amazing for James Abanqua off to Italy when he does his leave insert. So uh, he's pretty much looking around the exam hall saying, I'm winning this summer, everyone, regardless of what you're all up to. Uh, so uh, is it Longford originally, Dan, and then Cherry Orchard for a time and now St. Pat's and now suddenly Udinese? So life's moving pretty fast for this guy. It is, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an, it's an incredible deal for him. I mean, I've, I've heard conflicting figures about the fee, I have to say, and whether it's record-breaking or not, but it's certainly a good deal, really. And, and that's only... It's irrelevant. Like it's certainly in that ballpark, um, and uh, this is a yeah, this is a new type of deal in some ways. 
I mean, the fact he's going to Italy, and Kevin Zeffi from Shamrock Rovers went to Inter Milan um, last year. So it's not the first Irish player to go that route. Um, I think there's just a couple of striking things about it. Maybe this is just reflective of the, the new normal now post-Brexit, that we know more about these lads before they go. You know, at a previous time, someone like James Bankwell, like his elder brother went to Burnley when he was younger, um, a talented player as well. Hasn't necessarily happened for him there. But, you know, previously, maybe someone like James Bankwell, although he was, I gather, a little bit of a late developer, even in the schoolboy scene here, that he wasn't like outstanding at 15, but then really improved in the next sort of 18 months. They might have gone at 16 and, and they're, they're leaving somewhere. It wouldn't be a news report anywhere. You know, it sort of wouldn't. But he played the first team football for some Pats last year. I think 13 appearances, come off the bench in the FEI Cup final. So he's already played at 17 in front of 37,000 people in a pretty decent game in the Aviva Stadium, did very well. And I think off the back of that and his Irish underage stuff, Udinese have decided to come in and pay proper money. Um, and this is this is a, a big talking point within football here at the moment, that uh, a lot of players have left over the winter, um, you know, to, to various levels. You know, Johnny Kenny went to, to Celtic, John Matten to St. Johnston. Um, there's a few other kids, got a kid called Killian Phillips from Drada to, to Crystal Palace. Good moves, but... In each case, there's been a real analysis of the fees and there's been like release clauses and contracts um, of, you know, for ranging from sort of 50 grand to 150 grand, um, which some people would take the argument that this is this is not great. Like it's underselling potentially what the value of these players might be. Um, and that's to do with a traditional maybe perception of of the, the game here um, and the standing of the game here, which hasn't always been unfair, it has to be said. Um, but what you have to say is that I think St. Pat's and I think Shamrock Rovers have done similarly in recent years. Um, they've been willing to play a hardball a bit in terms of um, demanding fees for players, but also in certain cases, clubs such as Manchester City with Bazunu and Udinese in this case seem willing to come forward and pay a bit of respect and pay decent money rather than maybe paying the the sort of let's just try and get away with the 10, 15, 20 grand type offers, which has, you know, it's a curse that, that's holding the game back here. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting elements to it beyond the, the, the novelty value of an Irish player uh, with an interesting backstory going to Serie A. I understand for a lot of people, you know, lad who grew up in Longford going to Serie A, there's an attractive line to that. But there's also a significance, I think, in the, the monetary aspect of it. Um, mm. which is very interesting post-Brexit because in years to come, we're going to see a lot more players leave at 18 that would be a little bit better known, you know, because they've played in the league here. Um, and will that lead to more fees coming in, bigger fees coming in? We'll have to see. But you have the situation now in the next six months where you know, James Abanko is going to be here playing for some pats. And you, know, you can point him out to someone on the pitch and say, that kid there, he's joining Udinese in the summer. And that hasn't always been there before, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It will be more common going forward. Yeah. And do we know, Dan, every time he plays for Ireland, will St. Pat's get a million quid or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's where the Fazuni one went to another level. Um, if that clause wants to become a habit, I think people will get on board with that. But yeah, I think Gavin Bazuni has ended up gone over to, you know, over 1.5 million. Now, what I would say in defence of some of those other clubs I mentioned earlier who maybe sold some players for a cheaper amount, what they're hanging on to is these sell-on clauses, you know, for cheap money, but then maybe you get 10% of a deal. And like the Matt Doherty one, that ended up getting 1.5 you know, million quid or something for, for Bowes 10, 11 years later. 
but clearly more upfront cash is needed yeah. um, to create a slightly more viable industry here in terms of young player production. So that's that's the, the bigger picture aspect to this. No, it's but good. And it, itself, it, it, it's thrilling. It yeah. demonstrates a faith on Serie A's part in this instance in the quality on the pitch in the League of Ireland. So why wouldn't we all have a bit more faith in it, I suppose, is the other obvious point as well as money rolling in. Uh, Richie, water breaks or IP is your next headline. Yeah, water breaks have been consigned to the dustbin of history. Instead, the GEA is going to allow teams to have two Myrishka on the sideline for each game, starting with the uh, National League this coming weekend. The divisive water break rule was introduced during the pandemic, but is now history. Divisive. Everything's divisive. We, we, I, I was, uh, I didn't mind either It was. Way. I know, I know, I know. I, I, I kind of... I kind of like them. I like most people when I when the story popped up initially. I think it was last week, and the fact that GA were floating the idea that this is uh, a dead duck. A lot of people were like, "Thank God! Like we got to get rid of these things. They're shambles. They're nonsense." Like I kind of liked, especially that one in the second half, because it was a definite point. Like it's almost like when a car rears into the into the final straight, uh, come around a track. Like you knew this was like the last bit before takeoff. Mm. And you knew that the last. 17 minutes coming was going to be something pretty special they're either going to be fireworks or somebody was either going to you know move ahead and, and put the game out of sight completely but I liked the sense of drama particularly that the second half one added and just taking them away it's not it, it, like it's grand and all like it's gonna it's gonna not gonna make a huge difference but I'm, I wouldn't be as against them as a lot of people were over the last few weeks yeah I was a bit indifferent to be honest I didn't notice them half the time all that much you know um so I but like that said this summer when we're into the teeth of a great second half, I'm not going to be saying, God, we really need a water break here either. Uh, so we are going to be talking African Cup of Nations uh, very, very shortly at this hour. More about the events off the field, which were uh, desperately tragic on Monday evening. There is action on at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Mo Salah struck the winning penalty as Egypt progressed to the quarterfinals at the Africa Cup of Nations. The Pharaohs won a shootout with Ivory Coast 5-4 following a goalless 120 minutes in Douala this evening. Manchester United defender Eric Bailly missed for the Ivorians with Egypt sealing a last eight date with Morocco. There was a 7pm start in Limbe where it remains Mali nil, Equatorial Guinea nil. The winners of that one will play Senegal, Sajamani and all in the last eight. Dan Roberto Lopez bowed out. Yeah, I mean, like, a, there's obviously grades of, of what's happened in the last couple of days and, and the, the sort of the stadium crush, stampede and the death sort of hangs over everything else that's happened. And I would have been speaking to Roberto Lopez. I mean, he would have played his three games in the group stages at the same stadium and actually would have been in his diaries and stuff, would have discussed, you know, the crowd rushing up to the buses outside the stadium and stuff. So it's very real, I suppose, when you when, when, you know, He's describing that scene from last week, but um, I mean, you know, by scale, I mean, they've had a disastrous week, Cape Verde, in terms of around, around their exit. I mean, including him himself. You know, I, a lot of people might have seen the footage last night of him vomiting in the tunnel at half time uh, in the Senegal game because they got uh, dosed with a pretty bad um, spate of, of food poisoning around the camp, and um, you know, up to 14 players affected. And it does seem it was quite chaotic in terms of their preparations and even some of the arrangements in the hotel. Um, I would have been speaking to them earlier on with a view to maybe talking more about this later in the week. And uh, they, they went out to Senegal and the player sent off in each half and the half their squad was sort of debilitated by a, a condition that they couldn't really control, including him, who was doing extremely, like, extremely well 
and then had to go off in the biggest game of his life at half time. So um not ideal at all. Uh, not an ideal way to go out. But I think he's he's boosted his own reputation considerably. But uh yeah, it's been a strange all week. I mean that that stampede is like hangs over everything else. But even some of the the refereeing decisions against some of the smaller nations you would have to say have been questionable at best. Right. Rich, we might skip on to Jenny Infantino if we can. Yeah, the FIFA president has come in for strong criticism today after claiming staging a World Cup every two years would help prevent refugees fleeing their countries. Anti-racism group Kick It Out have described his claims as totally unacceptable. Infantino made the comments while addressing a parliamentary session of the Council of Europe. And we cannot say to the rest of the world, give us your money if you have or happen to have a good player by coincidence, give us the player as well, but watch us on TV. We need to include them. We need to find ways to include the entire world, to give hope to Africans so that they don't need to cross the Mediterranean in, in order to find maybe a better life, but more probably death in the sea. We need to give opportunities and we need to give dignity, not by giving charity, but by allowing the rest of the world as well to participate. Dan, this has received the reaction you might expect. I mean, you know, Andrew Jennings passed away, um, I think, the week before last. And like a lot of people, I, I would always urge them to seek out Fell, which is a book about FIFA's historic corruption going back a long period of time. And clearly, there's nothing corrupt about what's been said here. This is just someone um, spouting rubbish, basically. Um, but what, it, what that Fell does brilliantly is point out how FIFA, the old FIFA, as they would say, you know, they had this great idea of imagining themselves as like a as a nation state, like you know they were a country above everything else, and you know that they they, they would get sort of uh, blatter and code. They'd speak in this language about you know that the force for good FIFA can be, and 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 delve into issues really that they shouldn't be delving into, um, and and it's something to do with how they see themselves in the world, and it does seem that. Infantino is just uh, is going down a similar road when really what's behind this to many degrees is getting the biennial World Cup in and how's that uh, you know how that in some ways can be uh, equated to like the situations that sort of fleeing refugees or, or migrants offend themselves in I mean it's baffling but it really just goes to show that when you ask yourself uh, have FIFA reformed in any great uh, or, or remarkable way um, they, they clearly haven't. Um, and I mean, the rea- you say the reaction is, is, is as you would expect, but that reaction is probably going to be quite more so central towards the places that don't like FIFA or Infantino very much anyway. Hmm. Um, and his message is all about trying to sell this to, um, you know, the, the nations who might vote for them. And that's the way FIFA has operated for some time. But to weaponize that tragic occurrence which is far too great is shameful especially when you're weaponizing it to get an extra world cup into every four years and the other point richie actually and this just uh, speaks to the rank uh, hypocrisy of this organization is he claimed the real figure of worker deaths for qatar 2022 preparations is three that only three workers have died in the preparations for the qatar world cup the fifa uh, world cup which is just a lie 
yeah, thousands of courses as um, as Amnesty International and a report put out late last year uh, attested to. But like it goes to Dan's point and it goes to uh, the Jennings book fell <clears throat> and especially happened to Blatter because I remember I was reading a lot of like world soccer in the mid 90s and Blatter was often referred to in that magazine. Kerry Radnich was its editor at the time as uh, Sep, a thousand and one bad ideas Blatter and Infantino has kind of taken on that mantle. That there comes something with that job where and maybe it plays into that nation state ideology that they have that they become separated from reality and there is a lot of that to state that there's only been three deaths involved in the the building of the stadium for qatar 2022 is uh, a lie and that you know uh, equating giving hope to uh, quote-unquote africans uh, as he put it today that they would uh, benefit and not have to migrate to, to countries that would be far safer for them because of a biennial world cup is nothing short of crass and there's no like unless there's a groundswell of support for you know an underling or somebody to come and, and overthrow these kind of people then it's just going to keep rolling and you're going to have infantino's yes men uh pushing through these bad ideas and bad sentiments one after another and uh there's nothing we can do about it and that's that's the grim reality of the situation like people are trying to he's talking about people bettering their situations and uh, the situation for football globally won't be bettered because people like that are in charge of it fellas we're out of time richie thanks mel Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Joe.